0: The children are dismissed for Children's Church today. Kids, you guys can go on out, because we're going to talk about anger today. We're going to talk about flipping over tables. and So if you, if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is a, an astonishing section of Scripture that reveals Jesus is not only Remember in John 1, uh, John the Baptist came and he saw Jesus coming up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then when the disciples are with John, he he says again, Behold the Lamb of God. And so we see that Jesus certainly is the Lamb of God, but in this particular section we will also see that he is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And that Jesus is a surprising Savior, Because we we look at Jesus and we go, yes, the Lamb of God, meek and mild. And yet, in this particular passage, Jesus, you know, basically takes the temple money changers and the the priests and the the Levites and he puts them over his knee and he spanks them. And you go, he is the lion as well as the lamb. And so last week we talked about um, Jesus and his first miracle was he actually, you know, Um, allowed shame to be um, taken away. And so that the bridegroom, rather than having the shame of not having a good wedding feast, he was actually given a double portion because he had great wine. Great wine that was, you know, Jesus took these six vats of ritual purification and turned them into places of great festival joy. And so all of a sudden we go from a party in John chapter 1, everybody's having a great time, it's a party, and now we go into a fight. A party to a fight. Sounds like some of your family reunions, right? Started out as a party, and now we're going into a fight, right? Or you're thinking about Thanksgiving. You're like, oh, what do I say? What do I not say? How's it going to work itself out? But that's where we are in John chapter 2. Let us read the Word of God together. From 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Jews said to him, "'What sign do you show us for doing these things?' And Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" The Jews then said, it has, been, "'It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. And we all say the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, would, you, would you pray with me as we delve into the scripture. Father as we um, take up your word and we think about what Jesus loved and what Jesus hated. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help me to um, proclaim in truth what you want us to hear, that the Holy Spirit would be working in those who are listening as well as in myself so that we might subject ourselves to the Word of God, that it might handle us rather than us being so prideful to think that we handle the Word. Father, Take away the distractions of our hearts and mind, and Father, give us great zeal for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're at the Passover feast, and I want you to know this, that um, John actually marks time within his gospel based upon the Jewish feasts that are occurring throughout his gospel. We see that there's actually three different Passovers that he speaks about, um, We see the the first one uh, happening right here. The second one happens in chapter 6, and the third one happens from chapters 13 through 21. So you see that Jesus' ministry happens over a three-year time frame, and the way that we see that is through John's record of timekeeping as he works his way through the Jewish festivals. Now, uh, Capernaum, uh, where Jesus was, uh, and, and now going up to Jerusalem, Because we know that he was in Capernaum. He went down to Capernaum in verse 12 of chapter 2. Capernaum to Jerusalem. There's about a 20-mile trek between Capernaum to Jerusalem. And even though it's a southern uh, way, um, you're actually moving up. Because when you're in Israel, uh, Jerusalem is a mountain city. So as you are approaching Jerusalem, you're always going to be um, moving upwards, right? Right? And that's why when we uh, are in the Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 135, we call those the songs of ascent, the Psalms of ascent. And those are the Psalms that, that everybody is singing as they are rising up, as they are ascending the hill of Jerusalem. And the Passover feast, the Passover feast was a time when, when all of Jerusalem or all the people of God would come and they would want to worship the Lord. And again, they were, they were called to this. They were called to come and worship. And Jerusalem would have been a place that uh, was very crowded, very busy. You know, upwards of two, two and a quarter million people. Probably from a city of like maybe half a million, all the way up to two million, two and a quarter million people. So that it became very tight. And as you were, you know, rising up. So think about this. You're, you're rising up, you know, ascending the hill of Jerusalem, and you're singing the Psalms of Ascent and other um, pilgrims are also singing the Psalms of Ascent. And so you're probably, you're like, what are we going to sing next? And you're singing together and there's this great expectation that comes, right? So you're you're excited as you you ascend the hill of Jerusalem because you're going to celebrate Passover. And as a Jew, a Jewish person celebrating Passover, you're thinking about the Exodus account where the Lord God of heaven sent his prophet Moses to extract the the slaves, the Israelite slaves, from the bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And and the Passover represents this, the the Passover was the last plague um, upon Pharaoh, and it was that... You, know, you, We would take a, a lamb, and you would slaughter the lamb, and you would take the blood, and you would put it on the doorpost of the house, and the angel of death would come over, and if he saw that the blood was on the doorpost, he would pass over that particular house, and the firstborn of that house would be saved. Now, for the Egyptians, if they did not have the blood of the lamb covering them, then they would actually undergo the wrath of God visited by the angel of the Lord. Now, that's a picture of the gospel for us. You know, if we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, if we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, then the wrath of God covers or or passes over us. So Jesus, along with all of the other pilgrims, are making their way up to the temple. So there's this expectant, joyful uh, revelry, similar to, uh, similar to, okay, similar to, um, like game day okay? Now, I don't know, like, think about this. I mean, Lawrence is a, is a small town, small college town, but when you actually leave a crowded Memorial Stadium, and it usually takes you like maybe seven to ten minutes to get to the stadium, it's going to take you 50 minutes to get home, right? You're going to sit in traffic, and as you are walking along, you know, Illinois Street on the way to the OC following the game, you know, there's no cars there, Because it's just a throng of people. That's what's taking place at the Passover in this time period. You are wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder with people. And you are expectant that the Lord um, will be working grace in your life. As a matter of fact, you're going to the temple because you want to worship God. The temple is the place that you will meet God and that you will understand the sacrifice of atonement that carries away your sins. So the temple was a place where you, you began to understand what forgiveness was and, and what the cost of your salvation was. You, you begin to contemplate the holiness of God and that he has called you to himself to be holy. And that there's a place of reverence, but also a place of great joy. Now, I have a couple slides here to just represent the temple. Um, if you could put those slides, one, one of those. That's the temple, that's Herod's temple. Now, when you think about Herod's temple, you know, that intersection right there, that inner part is, is where all of the Jews would go, that those outer sections, I don't know if you can see this or not, but it actually says the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is on the, on the bottom side and also on the top side, but inside is where all the Jews would be. So when Jesus is coming, you would have to go through the court of the Gentiles in order to get into um, the court of women. I'll go to the next slide. This is uh, just a, you know, a diagram that shows this. Um, some of, it might be tough to see, but uh, just take my word for it. So on the, on the right-hand side, you see the court of women. Um, on, the, on the far outside you, know, outside, you know, you see this court of the Gentiles. Because if you were a Gentile, you weren't allowed into the, the temple proper. And So there was this sort of these concentric rings of holiness. And if you were an Israelite woman, you could go to the court of the women. You could go to the court of, the, of Israel, which is sort of that orange part that would go around it. Then you have the, the Levites, and then you have the Holy of Holies, where only once a year one priest was able to go into Now, if you're Jesus and you're a Jew, you're allowed to go into the court of Israel, but you have to get through the court of Gentiles. And so this is what we see as he comes in. So again, I want you to think about this. There's an expectant, joyful opportunity to worship the Lord, to be reminded. And everybody else is going to be worshiping the Lord as well. And what does he find? So the Passover in the temple, in verse 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, I want you to see this. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Because I want you to, to show you that, well, you can turn the slides off now. Um, I want to show you this, that this is actually something that, that the Lord God was telling the people of Israel to do. Look at verse 22 of Deuteronomy 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose. The place that he will choose, that's Jerusalem. The place that he will choose, that's Mount Zion. When Moses is writing this, he, he, he doesn't know this yet. Um, and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. And you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, And if the way, and this is the part I want you to get, and if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it there. And so there's this, there's this expectation in Deuteronomy 14 that if you live far, far away from Israel, and it's too hard for you to take all of your goats and chickens and pigeons and, and, and the tithe and the grain and all the other things that you're going to give to the Lord, that you will actually exchange that for money, bring it to the temple, and then probably exchange it, and then you'll see something. So what's happening on the temple, or at the temple, was, was something that, um, at least in the book of Deuteronomy, that we see that God actually ordained. But what had happened was there was a twisting because it wasn't meant to be in the court of Gentiles. As a matter of fact, it probably was meant to be across the valley in the Kidron Valley so that as you're approaching Jerusalem, as you're approaching going up, you're exchanging your money there, not in the court of the Gentiles. But look at what is happening here. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, here's what's going on so that you understand what's really, really going on. The money changers were thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 14 and saying, hey, we have to do this. This is obligatory for us. And they claimed that the business was a necessity, changing foreign currency into Jewish currency because foreign money was not acceptable for offerings in the temple. Authorities, and I'm reading this from a commentary, authorities tell us that the money changers charged as much as two hours of a working man's wage to change a half shekel. They charged the same amount again for every half shekel they gave in return for a larger coin. So if a man came in with a two shekel piece, he would have to pay an entire day's wage just to change his money. This brought a lot of money into the temple. Furthermore, the sellers and inspectors in the temple sold all the sacrifices. Rabbinical literature tells that us that the inspectors spent 18 months on a farm to learn to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. I don't even think that's a classic case state anymore. Um, They even learned to identify an animal that would one day become clean, even if it was clean at the time. The inspectors had a good thing going. If they did not approve an animal, it would not be approved. Extortion was common in the temple confines. To make things worse, Annas, the high priest, was behind the whole thing. Sarcastic commentators in those days dubbed the temple the Bazaars of Annas, They knew the high priest actually sold franchises for money-changing booths and animal sales. So when our Lord came to the temple, he found a religious circus. As his eyes scanned the great court of the Gentiles, he saw sheep, oxen, fowl, and everything that goes with them. There was huckstering, bartering, and haggling over the weight of a coin. The commotion that must have been within the temple Is almost beyond our imagination. It was certainly unacceptable to our Lord. So think about this. All right? Just for a second. Imagine uh, if you come to worship, and when you come into worship, we actually make people we start in the parking lot, right? We start in the parking lot and we're like, hey, it's um you gotta pay, you know, to park here at, at at the church, right? That's part of your temple tax, right? We got Josh Nye out there, you know, doing it. You know, he's like, he's doing that just like, you know, for the OC and other stuff. And, you know, we're, we're, we're paying, right? And then you come in and you, and you come in, you got your Bible with you, right? You got your Bible with you and you're like, man, I'm ready to go. And, and, we, and our ushers actually stop you and say, oh, oh, let me look at your Bible. Ooh, that is not a nine-point font ESV pew Bible that you must have. But I'm here to sell you one. So if you give me your Bible... I will give you the appropriate Bible so that you can now go in and worship as you should. And then some of you say, well, well you know, we're, we're that, yeah, that's, that's not right. But then you come in and you go, hey, um, we're actually gonna make people pay for seats. And like most of us, the highest price seats in this congregation would be in the back, right? You know? So you're like, I really, really want to sit in the back. So how much is it going to be? Oh, you want to sit in the back? Oh, you want to sit in the back? Uh, it's going to be like $800, you know, to sit in the back. How about the front? Oh, the front? I don't know. Like the front, like I really, you know, yeah, front, front's cheap, you know, come on up to the front, you know, like we will, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you, right? You know, we, we'll redistribute wealth, you know, instead of front. Now, all of those things, we we think about those, and there's a comical to us, but that's what's going on. That's what Jesus sees. So rather than, you know, people actually coming in expecting to meet God and to understand the atoning sacrifice of all that God has done, people are coming in and they're being, you know, taken advantage of. Or imagine that, you know, you have this perfect lamb and you go through your flock and you have this lamb. This thing is perfect, it's everything that you've raised it to be, but you're going to offer it to God. And some priest who sat in some, he says, you know what? I don't think that one's perfect. You need to replace it with this one. It'll just cost you a few shekels. But you can you replace your shekels over here. It's going to cost you a few more shekels, a few more shekels, a few more shekels, right? I mean, it's, it's a bait and switch, right? I don't know. I mean, when we see this, it's, it's, it's a shame, I mean, some of you feel this way, just in a comical way. I mean, how many of you guys have been to Chuck E. Cheese ever or Showbiz Pizza, right? Like, you go in, you replace your money, you know, your, your, your real money with, like, Chuck E. Cheese tokens. And then you go and you play, like, skee-ball or, like, whack-a-mole. And then you get these little tickets, and you think that at some point your hard earned money that has been now exchanged for tokens, which is now exchanged for tickets. And, you, and, and as a kid, you think, man, I've got like uh, you know, 2,000 tickets at the end of my day at Chuck E. Cheese, right? And you go, I'm going to go buy something. And you get up there, and the only thing that you can buy with your 2,000 tickets is like a spider ring. And you're like, man, I took $50. I turned it into a spider ring that I'm going to lose on the way home, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's what's going on in the temple right now. And Jesus sees it, and he gets angry. As a matter of fact, he got so angry that we see this in, in verse 15. And making a whip of cords. Now, that making of a whip of cords. Think about this. Jesus didn't bring a whip with him. He sees all that is going on, and he takes time to actually go weave or make a whip to drive them out. Now, some people, some commentators, I would call them liberal commentators, will say this about this, that Jesus didn't really make a real whip, like an Indiana Jones whip, that he just took some of the straw and he kind of wove it together. And he, and he, you know, and he kind of had you know, Jim Gaffigan's inner voice going, hey, fella, stop that, stop that you know, and just kind of shooed them out of the temple. That is not what happened here, okay? He was not, you know, mild and meek right here, but rather he was the lion of the tribe of Judah, where he says, you know, and he made, uh, again, he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So, you know, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it's not real easy sometimes to get sheep and oxen to move, Right? Like you just, sometimes oxen are not startled, you know, they're kind of like, whatever. And so you kind of have to move them along. And so you need something greater than just some, you know, whip made out of like straw. And so Jesus is, you know, driving out sheep, driving out oxen. He's turning over tables. He's flipping over money changers. He's telling them to get out. And it says, you know, in the scriptures, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now this may have been a reference. Uh, We're not exactly sure. But when we think about Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, is coming, says the Lord. In verse 3, it says, he will, of 3 of 3 of Malachi, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. Now, I want you to think about this. What is it that Jesus gets angry about? That's the key here, okay? The key here is is Jesus got angry. What did he get angry about? Okay? We see this. Is that when you turn a place of worship into a place of trade, you are robbing the people of an opportunity to meet God. He was saying, You have taken God and you've reduced him to some commercial idol, and that's wickedness. And when and, and really what I love about this story is that it actually takes place in the court of Gentiles, outside. And so the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17 that we read in the midst of the baptism is that Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham would not be a blessing only to the offspring of Abraham, but it would be a promise and a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount represented all the nations of the world. And so if you're a Gentile, who's not allowed into the inner courts of the temple, but you are allowed into the courts of the Gentile because you're a God-fearer, you believe in Yahweh, Jesus is saying, I want you to be able to worship and I want to see you to have worship fulfilled within your life. Now, when we think about this, um, A.W. Tozer um, you know, says this uh, regarding thinking about you know just the, the church and the temple and, and those kind of things. With, a, with, a loss, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. Now again, he's writing in you know, the mid-20th century. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Our hearts can become like that outer court of the temple of Jerusalem. Even while we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning through our heads. We may be thinking about the next business deal we are going to close, athletic events that await us, shopping trips or bridge parties, although probably hardly any of you think about bridge parties anymore. Solomon said it all when he said in Proverbs 5.14, I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. It is possible to be almost in utter ruin even while we are part of the Bible-based church. Here's a question for us. If Jesus were coming to our church today, what would he say? If Jesus came into, and and that's a question I think that as elders and as leaders in the church, we wrestle with that. Is what we're doing pleasing to Jesus? You know, is, is what we're doing, that would it, would it make Jesus smile to see us doing what we're doing? I think about this um, even in the midst of um, the book of Revelation, right? I mean, the, 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 the women in our church are reading the book of Revelation. When they think about the letters to the churches in Ephesus, you know, he says, "You know, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. But in verse 4 he says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When he thinks about the church in Smyrna, again he thinks about, um, but I have these things against you. Um, well, Actually, um, or... You think of Pergamum, you know. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food and sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have nothing. You have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. You know, when I think about, you know, whether you're Thyatira or Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea, you know, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. You know, when John, again, it's John, the Apostle John, the same one who we're, re- we're reading in this Gospel of John. You know, what is it that he might have against us? Um, I don't, that's just a, something for us to think about. Let me go back to um, Jesus in, in the midst of his anger. Um, don't get me wrong, you. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus is warm. He is compassionate. He welcomes sinners into his presence. But there's places in like Mark chapter 3, verse 5, the passage describing the man with a paralyzed hand. Jesus looked around at all those who were questioning whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath, and he looked around at them in anger, and then Jesus spoke to them. Or how about in Luke chapter 13, where he's responding to Herod, and he says, go tell that fox, and he doesn't mean, You know, fox is a pejorative term, that sly one, that cunning one. Go tell that fox. Or he speaks to Peter in Matthew 16, where he says, You know, out of my sight, Satan. Or how about the Pharisees in the temple saw nothing of his gentleness and meekness and mildness when he said to them, You are like whitewashed tombs. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? You see, Jesus, in his zeal for God, in his zeal for worship, is angry. Now, many of us have been reading through this book, you know, Good and Angry. Again, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to, to read it. But at its core, anger is simply saying, I'm against that, Right? At its core. When you get angry at something, you are saying, I'm against that. It is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, size it up, and say, that matters, and it's not right. You encounter something in your world that crosses the line. Anger expresses the energy of your reaction to something you find offensive and wish to eliminate. Right? We get that. That's what anger is. It's the emotion. We're making a value statement every time we get angry. And Jesus was angry and without sin. He never sinned, but he got angry. And he got angry when when people were thwarting or impeding people from worshiping the Lord. He got upset when people turned the house of the Lord into a place of commerce and commercialism rather than a place where people would meet God and understand the atoning sacrifice. He got angry about those things. And I think for for you and I, I think that there's a sense in which uh, what we see in Scripture is that we are called by God to be angry at what robs God of glory. So if there is something that is robbing the Lord of glory, we should be angry. You're righteously angry angry about those things when we see people taken advantage of we should there should be anger within us that leads us to you know constructive efforts to end that misery that occurs when we see you know I mean just around the world you know child sex slavery when I say those words there should well I mean you should be you know like gripping your fist right now because you're angry at that and we want to eradicate that from the planet. And when we see, you know, even you know, churches that have now taken the gospel and twisted it, and they still call themselves churches, but they are leading all of their people astray outside the gospel of, of the atoning sacrifice that was, you know, the, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And they go, you know what? We think that every way leads to heaven. There should be, the people of God should rise up and go, that makes us angry that should not happen in the midst of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, um, so I'm telling you to be angry. And you're like, man, this is a great sermon, George. We're going to go home and be angry. I've been, I've been working on that one for years, you know. I'm just such an angry person. So, so first of all, let, let, me, let me say this. Um, some of us aren't angry because we're just not affected by anything anymore. You know, Paulson says this um, with regard to, you know, anger. If you don't care, <laughs> you won't get angry. Right? If you don't care. Is this you? Perhaps you were born with a sunny disposition and easy-to-please temperament. You, you just can't identify with anybody being angry. Or maybe it's because you've learned to detach um, or you've learned to detach, get a grip, and calm down. Perhaps do yoga, take a deep breath, or have a drink, or take a drug that takes the edge off. Or maybe life circumstances have been relatively kind to you. No real reason to get upset. In any case, the assertion that you might have a problem with anger, let alone a serious problem, doesn't seem to fit. You aren't an overreactor, but could it be that, different, that a different shoe fits? Are you an underreactor or a non-reactor? Are you too laid back and indifferent? Do you keep your cool even when you should get concerned and even a little hot and bothered? Do you put layers of insulation between yourself and the broken things in life? I think one of the greatest concerns that I have for the the church is that we would be indifferent to the suffering that we see in the world. When we see injustice as the people of God, we should speak boldly that it is unjust or an injustice. We ought to care enough to get angry sometimes. Now, let me qualify that for a second. Are you angry at the right things? Are you angry at what God is angry about? The book of Proverbs, actually in Proverbs chapter 6, says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Okay, so what are those? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. That's what the Lord hates. Now, as the people of God, I think we need to learn what the Lord loves and what the Lord hates. And actually, this idea of hating what he hates actually comes out of the Lord's love and mercy to us because what he really gets upset about, and again, this is later on, I'm going to paraphrase this imperfectly, is that when the people that he loves are being taken advantage of, the Lord gets angry and those who are taking advantage of his children. You guys know this. If you have children, when somebody takes advantage of your children, you get upset. You get mad. You get angry. The problem is, for us, in the midst of our own anger, is that oftentimes we're angry about the wrong things. We're angry about our own comfort being impeded we're angry that you know somebody is impeding our progress we're not angry about you know serving the lord or somebody you know diminishing the glory of god but we get angry about our own glory being diminished or being impeded by someone else for example went to the game yesterday and it was it was a great game but the okay you lost right you know, having said that, if I stood here at the beginning six weeks ago and said, who'll take five and one for KU? Everybody would have stood up, I think. Maybe not Jack Ritter, but everybody else would have stood up, okay? Now, at the end of that game, I saw people losing their minds. And they were literally, you know, calling into question the virtue of TCU fans' mothers and progeny okay? I saw men angry, and they were angry at the wrong thing. I saw maybe a 60-year-old man being pulled out of the stands by his daughter who said, dad, dad, come on, come on, dad, stop it, as he continued to hurl insults at TCU fans five or six rows away. And I'm like, this is not righteous anger. This is folly. This is absolute foolishness. And when you see that occurring, you go, he's angry about the wrong thing. Now, within him, the anger, again, anger is saying, this is not right. And so his perspective was, you know, now, I'm pretty sure that his name was not Booth, so that zeal for his father's house was consuming him, okay? Okay. I don't believe his name was Booth, and that's what he was referencing in Psalm 69. But rather, he had made something a false idol, and that would be winning. He made something a false idol, twisted it, distorted it, became angry about it, and was now pushing out his anger on other people. We see that around us, and we go, that is certainly foolishness. But rather, the anger of the Lord is righteous, and it is about God's glory. About pursuing justice and mercy. Now, the the thing that strikes me about this, and I know I'm over time, but that's okay. Um, I'm I'm gonna get paid a little overtime this week, all right? So it's just the way things are. I've got the only job where people get upset when I work overtime. Here it is. So So this all happens, right? Zeal for your house, consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us? What sign do you show for us for doing these things? Now, that's an interesting question, because what they're saying is, we want you to produce a sign so that we know that what you're doing has credibility. But imagine, they are basically demanding that God do something for them. Essentially, they're placing themselves in a place of authority and saying, I want God to do what we want God to do. And Jesus isn't going to do that. And he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years. That's crazy. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Now, so this is is an epic thought right here because the place and center of worship within the Jewish culture was the temple. And Jesus is equating himself with the temple. He is saying, You need to come to me because if you come to me, the sacrifice for your sins will be once for all. As a matter of fact, there's a whole New Testament book that speaks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle and of the temple. We call that book Hebrews. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow leading up to the fulfillment of what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus says, come to me. I am this temple. If you want to be close with God, if you want to commune with God, then you will only be able to do that through me. Not this man-made temple. Through this temple of the Lord. You see, we can only come to God the Father through faith and belief in Jesus the Son. We can only have our sins paid for eternally through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus. Now, how do you you become a Christian? By believing in Jesus. Crying out, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the light. You are my life in Christ. There is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And if we pray, Lord Jesus, welcome me into your kingdom. Lord, save me. Then you can be assured that you're saved. At the end, um, let me conclude with this. There's a, there's a story in, um, that C.S. Lewis um, uses, and it's, it's a beautiful story. In The Voids of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund are engaged in their adventure when they come to a large, grassy expanse. And this, the sensuous green of the grass spreads off into the blue horizon except for a white spot in the middle of the green expanse, this little white spot. And as Edmund and Lucy look at the spot intently, they have difficulty making out what it is and being adventurous, they travel across the grass until finally the white spot comes into view and it is a lamb. And the lamb, white and pure, is cooking a fish breakfast. And author C.S. Lewis um, probably based this passage on the imagery in the 21st chapter of John. And the the lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast they have ever had. Then ensues a wonderful conversation as they talk about how to get to the land of Aslan, or heaven. And as the lamb begins to explain the way a marvelous thing happens, and as C.S. Lewis writes, his snowy, white, flushed. Um, his, you know, his flushed whiteness, it turns into a tawny gold and his size changes and he was Aslan himself towering above them and scattering light from his, na- from his mane. See, this lamb transforms himself into a lion. That's what we see going on in John chapter 2, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful that we worship the lion and the lamb. We are grateful for the way that you save us and that certainly behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, we rejoice that one day the lion of the tribe of Judah will come back and he will inaugurate his kingdom. Father, we are grateful that Jesus was angry for us, angry for those who would long to worship but could not because of the sins of man. Father, make us righteously angry. Make us angry about the right things. Father, may we respond in kindness to those who are suffering and struggling. But Father, may we we be like Jesus in every way, loving what he loved and hating what he hates.